welcome to the Human Flourishing Project. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Last week, I was having a discussion with someone about a topic that's already become big on this show and that people like to ask me about when they hear this show, and that's the topic of nutrition. And I've talked about how, for me, and I think for basically everyone, it's super frustrating that we can't really figure out how to get real knowledge about nutrition that's going to allow us to flourish as human beings. And, and that's, that's an instance of the broader project of the Human Flourishing Project, which is we're trying to solve this problem of how do we get reliable access to the knowledge we need to flourish. And I was talking to a really smart person at this conference, and she said, oh, if you like good methodology, you should really look at Dr. X. And I don't want to talk about who the person is because I don't want to go into as much detail as I would need to to really critique and praise everything about them. But just suffice it to say, this is somebody who's viewed as very smart and probably for at least substantially legitimate reasons and this person is a specialist on intermittent fasting. And I haven't really studied that much, but there's some intrigue there. There's some plausibility there. And as with everything in nutrition, it's it's exciting if I can get real knowledge that's going to help me. And then it's also scary if there's non-knowledge and then I follow it and something worse happens. So nutrition is this very high-stakes area and I really want to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to get real knowledge. And so, of course, if you've heard particularly episode two on upgrading our knowledge systems and particularly our internal systems for acquiring knowledge, uh, you know that I'm very big on thinking about that. What, what processes am I using to separate knowledge from non-knowledge? And uh, in, in episode two, I talked about certain validation processes that I use. Validation is, is the core of the knowledge acquisition process. First, we need to seek out knowledge, and then we need to validate it, and then we need to integrate it. But the, the core of it is really validation. So I was, I was reading this person and really on the premise of, okay, I'm going to use all my best acquisition and validation processes so that I can see what what's most likely to be true and what's not. And with this author, I found something that is that is uh, very common and, and very frustrating, uh, which is that I could use my processes effectively, but the most effective takeaway I got, which itself is an important takeaway, is I don't really, I can't really know anything this person is saying. I mentioned in episode two that one of my big processes is I always default things toward non-knowledge. I put them in the category of I don't know this until I really think there's evidence that I do. I don't, I don't feel the need to take a position on something pro or con when I'm exposed to it. My first, my first inclination is to say, okay, I don't know this. Even if there's a lot of sophistication, I have to be, I, there has to be real evidence that makes me think this is right. And in particular, there's one thing that people need to do that is super rare, 
and that did not happen here, which is that whenever they're making a claim to knowledge about a controversial topic, they need to address the plausible objections of their competitors, of other people who are claiming expertise and who are, in fact, specialists on this. Because if they don't do that, then it's super hard. It, it's super hard to know if they're right. And because I know it's super easy for them to just get me caught up in their own their own internal logic, but me not knowing what someone else would say. So in this case, I was I was reading it, and there were just a couple of things that came out when this person was talking about intermittent fasting, where I just thought this is not convincing to me. He has not explained this in a way that I can really have any idea of whether he's right. So for I'll just give you two uh, examples. And again, I don't want to go into the specific person because that's not really relevant, but this is, this is something that I'm sure you see all the time with nutrition and with other things. So one thing the person said very confidently as if, oh, this is just a, this is just this is just a killer statement. The person said, I'm paraphrasing, but this is very close. There's no evidence that cutting calories causes long-term weight loss. There's no evidence that cutting calories causes long-term weight loss. And when I hear something like this, one thing that comes to mind is, do I know anything that contradicts this, either in my own experience or in my previous studies? And along with that, I'll ask, particularly if it's an issue of highly specialized knowledge, I'll ask, are there any other claims that I've heard that are plausible that this is in contradiction to? And in this case of this issue of saying, well, no evidence that cutting calories causes long-term weight loss, well, I've read enough to see that there are a lot of people who say you should focus primarily on calories. And one thing they point to is that even though in past generations people had decent amounts of sugar and lots of other things that people might point to as a problem today, their overall calorie consumption was way lower and they were slimmer. So there, there are people who claim that there's this massive increase in calories now compared to several generations ago, and that correlates strongly with obesity. Now, my point is not that I'm fully convinced by these people or I know their whole argument. My point is that I'm exposed to that, and that's a plausible argument. And for this author to be persuasive to me on something about the nature, like the nature of calories, I need to understand why those other people are wrong, if they're in fact wrong. But this, this author, even though he's supposed to be really good in terms of methodology, he doesn't address that at all. And so I'm left just with these I'm left with these two little islands of claims to knowledge. He claims that calories, you know, cutting calories doesn't cause long-term weight loss, and then the other people claim that that's the primary thing, and it's really hard to know what to make of that. So that's that's one example where I really need the person to address the other arguments. Otherwise, I'm just going to have to default and say, well, I didn't really learn anything from this. Maybe I got some leads. Now, another example, and this is one that I hear all the time, is this doctor asserted very confidently that the key to weight gain is your insulin level and what certain foods do 
to spike your insulin level. And again, I've read enough on this to know that there are other people who dispute that insulin is so crucial to fat gain. And they don't just dispute it, they have their own examples and data that they cite. And in particular, the most, to me, the most persuasive thing, and again, I'm not saying that they're they're right. The, the point is that it's really hard to know, in part because people explaining things so badly and not addressing other people's explanations. And so in this case, though, what they would point to is they'd say, hey, you know, you claim that certain kinds of starches lead to a certain insulin spike, but yet, and that that's so crucial to weight gain, and yet there are pop, slim population after slim population who eat, who eat things like potatoes or barley, which are high carbohydrate and can have a certain spiking of insulin effect. They eat those, and they're really slim. So how can it be that this is the crucial variable when you have these people eating mostly high-carbohydrate, low-fat, unrefined plants, and they seem to be thin? And maybe there is an answer to this, and if there is, it's probably some nuance that the author isn't addressing. But part of the reason he's not addressing it is because he doesn't feel compelled to explain why the competitors are wrong. And this is just so common. Specialists who are claiming superior expertise, they don't have good systems for differentiating themselves from the specialists they think are wrong. And thus, we are just left to process these different, mostly non-overlapping claims. Or when they do overlap, they'll often, what's called straw man, the opposition. They'll, They'll make it into a to a very weak, they'll attack a very weak version of it, of the other person's position. And I mentioned a, a few weeks ago the idea of the steel man, which is that you want the best possible version. And I should elaborate, because this came up in the comments on Facebook, steel man doesn't mean that you come up with anything that would be hard to argue against whether it's legitimate or, you know, you're just using manipulation. Like, so steel man shouldn't be emotional manipulation tactics. It should be, hey, what is the evidence that um, that seems like it might be pointing toward the other person's claims? And then how do I address that? So maybe if someone was defending the unrefined plants diet, they would have to explain, hey, how do I account for that insulin issue? And usually they don't. And then the low-carb people don't. And, and so it's, it just makes our, our job so hard. So with this isn't to say that our own acquisition processes aren't incredibly useful to work on, because uh, even reading something like this, I think I can get a bunch of stuff that I otherwise couldn't. And, and certainly I can protect myself against non-knowledge that I would be too inclined to take action on. But it would be incredibly valuable if specialists had explanation systems that could differentiate the superior experts from really those who, who aren't right, who, who could, we really would want that. And that's why a big topic and a big part of the Human Flourishing Project is to develop superior explanation systems. And because we want we want the people who really have the knowledge to be as effective as possible. And so that's today's topic is superior explanation systems, 
How do they work? How do we develop them? How do we apply them? And this applies most of all to people who are subject matter experts, but it really applies to all of us because there's always, there are always cases where we know something. We have a very high degree of confidence that we know something, and yet it can be difficult to persuade someone else that we know it, particularly when they're hearing from other people who are wrong. And it's, it's very important to figure out how do we increase the chances of the person, of the audience, getting to the right answer. Now, the common, the common view on this, I think, is that, well, you really can't do that much in this domain. You can't really, if you're a superior expert, it's just, it's just really, really hard, if not impossible, to differentiate yourself from others. And in my experience studying the realm of persuasion, I see over and over the claim that, well, you can't really persuade anybody. Persuasion is all about manipulating people's emotions in, in different ways. And so at best, what the superior expert can do is just say, is just learn all of the opportunistic tricks that he or she can, and that way he or she will be on level playing field with the others. Uh, but in, in my experience, this is way too pessimistic. And because what I've found is that when I know something, there are explanation processes that I can often make it very clear to somebody listening that, my, that I'm right and then the person who's wrong is wrong. And the biggest way I got to this was through my main uh, concrete subject of expertise, which is energy. So I'll just tell you a little bit about how that developed and then what I learned that applies everywhere. So when I started studying energy 11 years ago, I pretty quickly determined that a lot of what people were being exposed to was not real knowledge. They were not getting real knowledge that would help them flourish. And one particularly upsetting example of this to me was what people were taught about nuclear power. Now, my first exposure to nuclear power, as probably many people's in my generation, was The Simpsons. So I'm 38 now, and I was nine when The Simpsons came out in 1989, I think. I was the same age as Bart. Obviously, I've aged a lot more than he has. And you know, nuclear power has this reputation of being incredibly, incredibly dangerous. And this is one of these views that people say, well, you can't, you can't change that. It's too, it's too entrenched in them. But I didn't like this at all because... In my research, nuclear power is incredibly safe, and there are a lot of reasons to prefer it over other forms of power. And it's really bad if people think that what is actually their safest option is actually their most dangerous option, particularly since nuclear power has a lot of other cool attributes, such as it doesn't generate any kind of air emissions, uh, and also it just... It can produce a ton of power and in an incredibly compact space. I mean, you can have you know aircraft carriers powered by this in a way that even 
even oil-based fuel, which is incredibly compressed, is, is nothing in terms of what in terms of how concentrated the energy is compared to, to nuclear. So I was really interested in with this issue and other issues, how do you persuade people? So I would test I would test different things out. And some things would work and some wouldn't. And then I I at one point I stepped back and I asked myself a question. And then this question just totally accelerated everything. And this is a question that I think even the best experts who are right about just about everything in their field, and that includes knowing what they don't know. It's not that they're omniscient, you know, that they're all-knowing, but they're, they're, they know a lot and they're, they know what they don't know and what they really know and what they partially know. The thing that people just don't ask, I think, is, well, what is the, what's my model of explanation? By which I mean, what, what does the ideal explanation consist of? If I'm trying to persuade somebody and I have unlimited time and resources, what, what do I need to go through? What needs to happen for them to get from where they are to where I want them to be? And it's really important to ask this. Now, it might be that the answer turns out, oh, it's too hard and too involved and no one would ever do that, but we at least need to know what the ideal is because then we can find more efficient ways of, of approximating it. And when I started thinking about this, the model that I came up with and that I still use, I call context bridging, context bridging. And here's how I think about it. Think of the person you're talking to as they're at context A. So a context means the sum of things that you know or think you know. So they're at a certain context on an issue, such as the safety of nuclear power. And then if you're trying to persuade them, you're at context B. So you're trying to bring them from point A to point B or context A to context B. And so it's from one set of things that somebody thinks they know. And then you want to bring them to another set of things that in this case leads to, in this example, leads to a certain more accurate evaluation of the safety of nuclear power. So the, that's the big thing is, is, then then the so the model is you've got one context and then you want to bring them to another context which then raises the question how do you bring someone to another context and as i think about it there are three types of things and really only three that can happen one is you need to add context so there's something that they are missing that they just need to be added so for example in the case of nuclear safety, one of them is, in my view, the fact that a nuclear power plant can't explode. And there are a whole bunch of interesting physical reasons for this, but the core fuel in a nuclear power plant can't explode. And that makes life so much easier in terms of safety because so much of danger in energy is the energy source going out of control immediately with no time to react. Whereas if you have something that can't explode, then you have a whole bu- even if something goes wrong, you have a whole bunch of time to react. So this isn't a talk on nuclear power. It's just giving you an example of this is something that I feel like I need to add to someone's context. So that's one thing you need to add. The next thing, the next possibility is you need to subtract. 
So there will be certain things that somebody believes where I think, no, I need to get them to unbelieve that. I need to get them to realize this is just not true. So, for example, in the the nuclear issue, there are a bunch of historical anecdotes that people have where they think, oh, a lot of people died in, say, Three Mile Island or Fukushima. And then that needs to be subtracted because, in fact, there weren't deaths due to nuclear power in those circumstances. And then there are um, there's the case of Chernobyl, which is more complicated, but even still there, there's very few deaths there. And that was... Um, that was a horribly engineered one, which we would never use today. So that was essentially designed to be dangerous by a Soviet government that just had no concern for safety. So again, these are these are details, but I'm just giving you an indication of if I believe that nuclear power is safe, I need to think about context A, context B, then what do I need to add? What do I need to subtract? And then the third one, which is just as important, is modify. What do I need to modify? What do they know that's a half-truth or a partial truth. So it's not that I can just throw it away or subtract it, nor is it that I just need to tell them something new, but I need to clarify or modify something they already believe. And in this case, an example of that would be the belief that radiation from nuclear power is dangerous, that radiation is dangerous. And there, without going into too much detail, the idea is that, well, that's not precise enough because it is dangerous in certain very high quantities, but those quantities are almost impossible to expose anyone to. And the quantities that we're actually exposed to are more along the lines of what you get just sleeping next to a spouse from radiation that ultimately emanates from their body. So there, there's a lot of detail to this one, but the, and, and that's part of it is that if, if I'm going to explain to somebody that nuclear power is safe... I need to I need to be clear on what am I going to add, subtract, and modify. Now when I when I follow this model of context bridging and then I think with my explanations of what do I need to add, what do I need to subtract, what do I need to modify, what I'm doing is I'm becoming strategic about explanation. I'm actually being clear on what needs to happen for the person to be legitimately persuaded or intellectually persuaded. Most of what I see, even when I work with high-level people on explanation, is that I see two big things. One is that they are very inspiration-driven with explanation. So instead of really scientifically identifying where the person is, where they need, where they, um, need to be, what are the key logical steps to get there? Instead, it's it's more like, hey, I'll make this point first, and I'll make that point second. Oh, that doesn't sound that, that good. Okay, I'm going to make another point. So when people outline, which itself is too rare, it's just kind of, oh, I'll try one thing, and I'll try another thing, and then we'll see, and maybe this will work, and this sounds good. But that's not a very good system, because explanation has a science to it. There's certain context that somebody needs to understand a point and as explainers, it's our job to give them that context, or at least give them as much of that context as we possibly can. And if we don't do that, then guess what? We're not going to be very persuasive because people are going to have, say, they're going to have ideas that we needed to subtract or modify, but that we didn't. Or they're going to have key things that they don't know that we needed to add. 
And then we can say, oh, well, no, you can't explain anything to anyone. People are just biased. They're just emotional. But we didn't really give them a chance because we didn't do our job. So that's what goes wrong when you do inspirational, when, when the explanation method is too inspirational. Now, sometimes people are strategic, but they're strategic usually about more superficial manipulation. They think like, okay, this person loves America, so I'm going to put an American flag or I'm going to say that my opponent is un-American. And that stuff can definitely work in certain ways, but it's not helping us, for one. I think it's it doesn't work as well as people think often, and it doesn't work in an enduring way, but it's certainly not helping us solve the problem that the Human Flourishing Project is trying to solve. Just doing superficial manipulation of people is not giving them reliable access to the knowledge they need to flourish. Whereas doing real context bridging, if people did more of that, that would be incredibly, incredibly helpful. So that's that's a big part of our explanation system, is just having a good model. And the context bridging one is, is by far the one that makes the most sense to me. If other people have other models, I'm interested in those for sure. But at least we should have a model. We should have a model of what a really, really good persuasive explanation looks like. And in the realm of nutrition, if that happened, it would be so much easier for me. Because, for example, anytime someone talked about insulin or calories, whatever their view was and whatever view is right, they would have a really clear view on, okay, what do I need to add? But also, what has the person been exposed to that I need to subtract? And then what have they been exposed to that I need to modify? So if I was confused about insulin, then and this intermittent fasting doctor is right, then he would explain to me, hey, here's what's wrong with what you've heard about insulin from the other people. Here's why those studies of those populations don't actually say what they, what those specialists say that they do. But without that, I just don't know. So if you're, particularly if you're in, you're in nutrition, I would love it if you thought in terms of context bridging. So that's the model of it, which is incredibly helpful by itself. And then once we have that as a model, we can think much more effectively about what are processes that we can use to help people bridge that context more effectively? And so today, what I want to do is I want to talk about just one of these. Uh, it's maybe my favorite and one that I've just found revolutionary in my own ability to explain things to people, even when they're starting out with a context that seems really hard to reach. And this process is framing. And so I'll explain what that is. So framing. But to, to get into it, let me explain the problem that framing solves. So when uh, just give an indication of a, a f when I talk about framing or framework, a framework is in the realm of the physical, a starting structure. So with a building, the building has a starting structure or a car, you're building a car around a framework that has a starting structure, and then that influences everything else. And this is very similar to thought or conversation or explanation, where the way that the starting structure of the explanation is going to determine so much. And usually what happens is there is a starting structure to an explanation, but it's not stated. It's not clear 
where the person is starting from, and that leads to a lot of confusion. So why is that so important? Well, it's because of if we step back and ask if our goal is to explain things in a way that differentiate ourselves ourselves from other specialists who are wrong or non-specialists who are wrong about this issue, what what do people really need to get to see that another person is wrong? It's, it's always worth thinking about what what is another person when I'm speaking to an audience and I'm competing with people that I think are wrong, what what does the audience really need to understand to see that the other person is wrong? And overwhelmingly, it is that the other person, it's not that they're wrong about one fact, it's that their method or their really their acquisition system is usually way off. There's something about the way that they're processing information that is just that's leading them to the wrong conclusion, and then that makes their explanation unconvincing. So if you take the realm of, of nuclear power, say, what is going wrong when people say that nuclear power is dangerous? Well, one thing that's going wrong is, is bias. People are not being even-handed when they claim that nuclear power is dangerous, because to be even-handed, what you need to do is you would need to say, okay, I want the safest form of power, so I'm going to look carefully at the dangers of all forms of power. I'm not just going to look at the dangers of nuclear power and then assume other things are safer. I'm going to look carefully at the dangers of all kinds of power. And yet with nuclear power, people don't do that. They just usually focus on, hey, what's dangerous about nuclear? But then they ignore the other options. And I remember in the realm of energy, I was incredibly impressed by this guy, Peter Beckman, who ended up being a mentor of mine, even though just, just from reading his stuff, he, was, he wasn't alive by the time I started reading him. But I remember he had this book called The Health Hazards of Not Going Nuclear. And in that book, he, was, he said from the outset, I'm not saying nuclear power is safe. I'm saying it's safer than the alternatives. And that was so clarifying to me because I saw, oh, this guy, here's what's different about him. He has a clear method. He looks at the safety of all the alternatives, whereas the other people just look at the danger of the alternatives that they're predisposed to be against. And once I saw that, once he had shared his method at the beginning and explained what made his method different from others, it was so easy for me to see that he was right in many instances where others were wrong because I could see, oh yeah, they're using the wrong method. And this applies all over the place. It's almost always the case that if other people are wrong, it's their method is usually wrong. So one example of that is, is bias. Another example is sloppiness or exaggeration when people in say in the realm of, of um, technology, often people will act like if something is dangerous in some quantity, then it's dangerous in any quantity. So people will take a huge amount of radiation and then just assume, Oh, any radiation is bad. So there's that kind of sloppiness. And if somebody says, no, I, I believe in being precise, then you start to see, Oh, this is why this person says this and the other person says that because this person is precise and the other person isn't precise. 
So sloppiness, that's another common one versus precision. And then another one, there are many of these, but another one is that the person has a different, people have different goals. So for example, in the, in the realm of nuclear power, I actually think that the people opposing it, their goal as judged by the positions they take and what they say is often that that they want to be as natural as possible. They often think of nuclear power as unnatural, and a lot of their arguments amount to not that it's really unsafe, but that it's not natural. And so if somebody says from the outset, hey, I don't believe in using the most natural form of power. I believe in using the form of power that's best for human beings. That's my goal. Then as a consumer, I can see, oh, this is going to be a big differentiator. This person is in favor of human flourishing versus this person is in favor of natural as the primary. I can see how they could go in other directions. So if method, method is so much of what is going to differentiate different specialists in a field, which means that if you're right, what what really has happened is you've used the right method. And then in your explanations, one thing that's going to be really crucial at the beginning, the most important thing you can add to a discussion is not any given fact or conclusion. It is your method. And this is when I talk about framing, that's what you're really doing in framing. You're explicitly establishing your method. You're saying this is the method or the framework by which I am functioning. And there are a lot of different ways to do this, uh, but the important thing is just to recognize that it, it needs to be done. You need to figure out a way to make really clear, hey, this is how I'm thinking of things versus this is how others are thinking of things. So I would imagine in the realm of nutrition, let's say there are all kinds of different studies. And imagine there was somebody who said, who had really looked at all the studies and really had integrated all of the evidence into the way that he or she thought, then that person should say, hey, as in coming to my conclusion about nutrition, I noticed that people were often cherry picking studies. And one of my methods is that I wanted to address all studies. I wanted my views to emerge from all studies. And so hold me to that standard and hold others to that standard. And I'll bet if the person did that, then they would then be compelled to give me a lot more context about different studies, including the studies that seemed plausible for their opponents. And then I would say, oh, the opponents, they're just giving me this cherry-picked sample, and then they're manipulating those studies. And then that would make my life a lot easier. So if the explainer can do this, it makes their lives a lot better, and it makes everyone's lives a lot better. If they have this model of context bridging, and then as the key process, or a key process, they frame things. They establish their method explicitly, and then they follow their method in the rest of their explanation, and then they show how others are not following the right method. I, I can't tell you how effective I've found this for my own work and how much I love it when somebody like Peter Beckman does this. He was a, just a really good example. I read his newsletter and just anything he would be talking about, 
he would just, he would, it would be really clear that he had a good method. And then he would just so clearly apply that method. And when I can find somebody who's really trying to do context bridging, whether they know the term or not, and that they probably don't use that term and where they frame things and then follow their framing, I will just spend so much time and energy just consuming that person's stuff because there's such a higher chance that they're right about things. And then when I look for an opponent, I'll look for an opponent if I can find one who also does that. And often I can't find one. And that's often because the opposing view just isn't following a really, really good method. So context bridging and framing, those are just amazing assets to our explanation systems. So I hope you, you find those useful. And as an exercise for this week, I, I like to have an exercise every week and, and encourage people to share the answers on Facebook. What I want you to do is, is share an example of, of how you frame a discussion in a way that's effective, in a way that sets it up for success. So is there some question or line that you use early in discussions that makes it easier for the other person to understand why your explanation is right and the others are wrong? Any, anything you have in this realm uh, is great, and it's, it's the more we can find better ways to frame things, the, the more effective we can be, and then the more we raise the bar for others. I envision in the future that that 10 years from now even, if, if this project is successful, that the standards of how conversations and explanations are framed will just be so much higher, and that 90% of what passes today will at least among a lot of a lot of students of life just be considered nonsense and unacceptable because the people didn't frame the explanation with their method, and then they certainly didn't follow the right method, and they certainly didn't explain how their opponents weren't following the right method. That's, that's what I think is possible, and this is the first big step, is, is introducing people to these ideas of context bridging and framing, and then inviting you to share your own approaches to framing. So that's the, the core of today's episode. I had one more thing I wanted to share that I think might be of interest and, and will at least be of interest to some people listening, which is the, the business opportunity that I think exists in the realm of explanation systems. In general, with Human Flourishing Project, the belief of it is, the core belief of it is that the key to getting reliable access to knowledge we need to flourish is developing and applying new and better knowledge systems, systems for acquiring knowledge, for applying knowledge, and explaining knowledge. And I really believe that if we can create a lot of value in the world, I as an individual and other individuals working on these kinds of projects, I should be able to find a way to get people to pay for it. And that one aspect of that is figuring out a way, a good payment model for this program. That's something that I'm delaying a bit because my first focus is just I want to make it really good, make it really valuable. And because if it's not that valuable, then there's no point in trying to, 
to charge a bunch of money for it. It should either be scrapped or it should be improved. So that, that's one thing. Uh, that's one way of, of uh, what people call monetizing the value that can be created here. But there's also a ton of other ways that I and I think others can pursue the systems-based approach of the Human Flourishing Project and help people who will eagerly be willing to pay for it. And this realm of explanation is, is definitely one of those. With just my work in energy, I, over the years, have gotten people who say, hey, I love the way you explain energy issues, the way you frame things. I would like you to help me do this in other fields. And historically, I haven't had the bandwidth for that, and I haven't thought enough about how this might work. But now with Human Flourishing Project, this is much more of a focus, and I've already started working on a couple projects with people totally outside energy, but cases where there are people who believe that they're really right about something, and they want to differentiate themselves from others. And I think of, if you're in that category of you really think you're right and you want to differentiate yourselves, I think I think of that as the superior expert. And a superior expert can be both a subject matter expert, but it can also just be a business that really believes that it's creating the most value and that's having difficulty persuading others that it's creating the most value. And I think it's a huge problem that in the business world, a lot of companies that are doing something legitimately superior don't have the explanation ability to really differentiate themselves. And sometimes they're getting outcompeted by those with inferior explanation ability. And this is probably particularly true in the startup world of new companies with new ideas about how to improve the world. If they're not really good at explaining themselves, then we're, then we'll potentially get deprived of the company, but we'll also get deprived of the ideas of the company because there may be a company that it's not the right mix of people, but they've got a really fundamentally good concept. And if they could pitch that better to potential investors, then that concept would at least get be more likely to be adopted. So one little project I've started working on recently is working with a few startups that seem to me to have a lot of potential and that definitely seem to be onto something and then helping them explain things more persuasively. And then I'm also doing this a little bit in the political world with people who are, are pro-freedom, which I think is definitely fundamental to human flourishing, and helping them differentiate themselves more. And by doing this, I think I'll be able to create a lot of value, and then I'll also learn a ton about explanation systems that I will be able to share with others, and particularly on this show. So there should be a nice virtuous circle of, of helping people with specialized explanation projects, developing better systems, sharing those systems, and then maybe some of you listening to this show at some point, maybe you have a high-level explanation project where you want help. So if any of you are in that category, and from what you've heard already, this is something that might be intriguing to you, just uh, email me at alex at alexepstein.com, and maybe I can help, maybe I can't, but uh, at least tell me about what you're working on and how better explanation systems may help you create a ton of value, and at the very least, it should be an interesting exercise for you, and I'll learn something just by learning about your challenges. So that's one example of how the mission of the Human Flourishing Project is just a, even though it's it's a very intellectual mission of knowledge systems, it is the most practical mission 
because real knowledge is power. And thus there should be anyone who's interested in this, there should just be tons and tons of opportunity to pursue. And what I would like to see is not just a human flourishing project business that I run, but I'd like to see other people in this realm making a contribution because ultimately this is a project that I want millions of people to be involved in. All right, so I hope you enjoyed today's content, particularly the context bridging model and then the process of framing, of, of establishing your method explicitly in explanation. And next week, what we're going to be talking about are application systems. We've talked about acquisition systems. We've talked about explanation systems. Next week, we'll talk about application systems. As always, I welcome any kind of feedback. You can put it on the Facebook page, or you can also email me at alex at alexepstein.com. If you found this episode intriguing, or if you just like the project more broadly, make sure to share it with friends and encourage them to join the discussion on the Facebook page. It's great to see new people involved, new likes every day. And I think that uh, I just want to see that continue, particularly now that we are on iTunes. No excuses now. We're on basically every podcast platform. So you can get this anywhere. Pretty much any medium people want, people can get it in and it'll soon be available on YouTube. YouTube is a little tricky because we're publishing slides along with the audio. So that's going to be delayed, at least for the foreseeable future. I mean, individual episodes will be delayed, but we'll have the first one up soon. And then particularly if people like it, we'll crank out the others pretty quickly. If you want to be up to date on this, make sure you're on the Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash human flourishing project, and also go to http colon slash slash human flourishing project.com and enter your email address to get the weekly updates. All right, that's it for this week. Happy explaining. I'm Alex Epstein. This has been the Human Flourishing Project. <laughs>